0: Hi everybody and welcome to the 6th edition of the World Football Index in my life podcast. We've got another guest lined up. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Andy
1: Wales. Andy, how are you today? Uh, you had a nice weekend by the looks of it? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I've had a, a good weekend. Trip away to uh, my football in Mecca yesterday with my son. Well, here
0: we're joined by uh, another batting partner of uh, the South American show in the form of Brandon, who's going to talk us through his highs and lows of football, which I'm very much looking forward to hearing. Adam, first of all, how are you? It's been a while since we've done a pod. like That's... Uh, no comma limit of doors this week due to technical difficulties, but we'll get that out. How are you?
2: Yeah, all right. Um, probably be a little bit rusty, as you say, because, you know, uh, I don't think I've potted in about a month, which is very unusual for me. I had a wisdom tooth out on Friday night, so that was fairly unpleasant. But um, let's crack on because Eureka kick off in just over an hour and, uh, and I need to get to the stadium. Do
0: you hear that, Andy? Now we've got to be quick. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> w- w- without further ado, Adam. Give us a positive, far away, Floor's yours.
2: My positive to start with is going to be the World Cup. I couldn't really just pick one, but my obsession, so to speak, with football started with the 1990 World Cup. That was such a dramatic tournament. I know that people look back on it in a, in a way and say, you know, it's such a cynical World Cup. There weren't many goals, but I, I don't think there's been... Many World Cups, quite as dramatic and quite as unbelievably kind of engrossing as, as that World Cup. Maybe, maybe it was the fact that you know, being English and as a just a six-year-old at the time, you know, was a kind of a big England fan. Very different from now. You know, the fact that England did so well in it and got to the semi-finals. I, I think I said on my yeah, eleven pieces of me pod, I talked with uh, Gavin Ali about you know over Paul Gascoigne in, in in that World Cup having such a big impression on me. That's the World Cup where my Sort of love of football really started. But yeah, I think I'm in the minority here with people on WFI, it seems, and certainly kind of British football fans in general for one of a better grouping where I actually prefer international football to club football. You know, don't get me wrong, when I lived in England, it certainly wasn't the case. When I lived in England, I pretty much ignored a lot of international football. But since moving over here to South America, and you'll know this, Dave, as well, kind of the well, South American World Cup qualifiers become, you know, such a... National event, and and certainly when there's a tournament on itself, be it the Copper America or the World Cup, whole country comes together. There's hardly any cars in the street, and everybody's in there in their homes with their family watching the country whether they like football or not it seems yeah it's kind of changed my perspective on international football moving over here to South America we come on to another one of positives later but certainly you know Chile playing a competitive match here is a you know a very big deal and and the atmosphere in this country certainly in the last World Cup was unbelievable really so for me the World Cup it's still the greatest football competition on earth I think it's possibly a generational thing, this as well. If your first World Cups were maybe 2002 onwards, I don't think you have quite a connection with the World Cup. But certainly anybody who, who grew up in the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s or 90s, so the, World, the World Cup was is is still a pretty big deal to you. Would I be right in saying, do you think, guys?
0: Yes, for me, definitely. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just curious. We are going through a golden jacket. Just before we talk about the 90 World Cup, I'm just curious about the the, the Chilean side of things. At the moment, you have this golden generation, probably the best that Chile have ever had, and and you've been so successful. But before that golden generation, I take it it was still the people in the bars, the people with their families. It still meant that much. Uh, It's not just the golden generation. Obviously, it's, it's enhanced it, Adam, but that would have been... Throughout the country, that, that, that really strong belief, that national identity, getting behind it is a very, very South American thing. I, I take it the success has only enhanced that, but it was already there.
2: I will talk about you know Chile's success later. That's actually one of my other positives of this pod. But certainly, when I speak to other people here about the World Cup, sort of a whole generation before um, the 2010 World Cup, you they only had the 1998 World Cup to go on. So Chile weren't in 86, 90, 94. They weren't in 2002 and or 2006 neither. So they had like one World Cup in six. So. The 1998 World Cup here is talked about a lot and a lot of people have fond memories of that. That's not to say that people didn't pay attention to the other World Cups. You know, it was certainly still a big deal here when I've spoken to people about the 1990 World Cup. One of the first things they say to me, ah, Paul Gascoigne was was amazing. Just goes to show, you know, just how much the world, you know, comes together. Even if your country isn't in it, you're still going to watch the competition. And I remember that I was, I was heartbroken as a kid when England didn't qualify for the '94 World Cup, but it didn't really ruin my enjoyment of that competition. Looking back, and you being Northern Irish, you know, since uh, what you qualified for '82, '86, but haven't since. No, Dave, but would you say that it's ruined your enjoyment of the competition. No, not at all. I think the thing thing in
0: Northern Ireland, the expectation is if we make a World Cup Finals, it is complete another dreamland. You know, there's no expectations beyond that. It's going there. It's attending. It's being part of that 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 wonderful cup of carnival of football, whether it be the Euros, whether it be the World Cup. It's the taking part. It's the being there. I'll say we know we're never winning it. If we're going to upset somebody along the way, very very different mentality, I think, than than what maybe you grew up in, Adam.
2: Yeah, definitely. And the only thing I would say on this kind of if Chile don't qualify uh, for the World Cup you know, happening next year, I think I would be pretty gutted. feel that this kind of golden generation needs to be at the World Cup next year, especially with the style they play. But generally, I'll still probably watch every game, even if Chile don't make it. How about you, Andy? Are you a fan of it?
1: I, I am. I'm still a fan of the, the World Cup. And I, I do think it is perhaps a generational thing. I mean, my question to you would be the way things have kind of turned around. The world cup was always seen as the pinnacle for a footballer. And I do wonder whether or not, whether you might agree with this, if it's sometime around about the, where the Galacticos thing came in at Real Madrid, where in Europe, the pinnacle kind of switched from international football to club football with all the money that surrounds club football now and and everything is about the money and the success or the perceived success that you get with your club that international football has kind of in the eyes of a lot of European fans has kind of you know moved aside somewhat and it's become more about club football whereas the rest of the world that perception hasn't really sort of changed do you think that's fair?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's part of the reason. But I think the, the biggest reason overall, and I, and I have kind of looked into this as well over the years, I, I think the biggest thing is television coverage. So when we grew up watching the World Cup, I, I know I'm a bit younger than you two guys, but when we grew up watching the World Cup, there really wasn't that much football on television. And certainly, you know, football outside the country you lived you lived in was was unusual. I know that... In Britain in the 90s, we had the Gazzetta Football Italia on Channel 4. That was obviously really great and really impressive at the time. But apart from that, you, you would never see a match from a South American league. And unless you had Sky pretty much any other league in Europe as well.
1: There's a saturation issue in there.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's the thing. Because, you know, when we used to watch a World Cup, they would, that is our first exposure to so many sort of interesting and great players, isn't it?
1: Yeah, like Famine and Feast. You used to, you know, you used to be rationed to the amount of matches you could watch, and all of a sudden here's a tournament, and in the space of you know five weeks you get to see something like fifty matches, and and it's just an incredible yeah. experience to be able to see, like you say as well, is that exposure to players that you didn't normally get to see, whereas now it's kind of normalised that you see these players week in week out. You can watch, you watch live football almost any hour of the day, any day of the week. But then again, I suppose the flip side is to that is. In South America, you've got access to be able to see all these different leagues and different players. Yet, international football is still seen as the pinnacle.
2: Take the Chile national team, for example. You know, there's only a couple of couple of players in their usual starting eleven that actually play in Chile. Most of them go to Europe, and so each time they come back here, they're sort of received more as sort of heroes. You know, heroes who have gone gone away, gone to Europe, conquered Europe in some way, and then they come back here. I think I think that's the difference there. i think I think people just have a lot more pride in seeing their people go abroad, achieve something great, and then come back and And I think that's part of the reason the South Americans get the support they do over here. Is that they feel represented by them in Europe?
1: Well, I would say that that's the thing where perhaps it comes back to that generational thing that you mentioned. That even though you know, as as Europeans, and even though we've 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 got this saturation where we see matches, you can watch them any day of the week, and you can watch this league, that league, anything you want. It's still for me. I, I still love World Cups. I, I still I still feel a sense of excitement even watching. To, it's, I've got to say this you Know watching some pretty mediocre teams, but there's something that because it's a world cup, I'm quite happy to watch teams play each other that I would never normally watch,
2: yeah. And it, and it's in those sort of games where you could still maybe discover a little bit of magic, you know, seeing a player you've never heard of the first time. So oh, I, that's, I that's, feel... that's
0: got diluted out of my feel, you yeah, know what I mean? It, Certainly, for, it, at it, my it age, has, you but know? in
2: but like Andy says, in those kind of media, mediocre matches, so. I don't know, say Honduras against Iran, you still might discover a player who really impresses you who you haven't seen before, unless you watch football 24 7, which very few of us have time to do.
0: So, from from my point of view, I think at my age, Adam made a point there about you, you got to see these players every four years. So, the World Cup for me was always this mythical creature that came along every four years where you got to see the Zicos, you got to see the, Celtics, you know, but I feel that, you know, Adam cited Italia 90. I feel that Italian '90 was the last World Cup where that was really, really the case. I think Italian '90 was an innovator for football in, in many regards. And gone of the day, you know, a national team would have laid waste to any league team anywhere in the world. Whereas today, I think most, most league teams would probably beat uh, an international side, or certainly, you know, the, the, the higher leagues of Europe. And I think that's the big difference that we find here. Definitely.
2: Shall we move on to a negative? We love a
1: negative, Andy. <laughs> oh yes we do like a negative
2: I'm actually going to just just do a quick negative, it's, it's just all, off the back of this really and it's uh, Simon Edwards mentioned in his In his in My Life and that, and that's a detachment from England and and for me I can sort of pinpoint the moment really and that, and that was a 2002 quarter final against Brazil where I watched this over breakfast in a pub in Cambridge with a really good mate of mine We sort of watched England's hopes, you know, peter out slowly over those 90 minutes. England did take the lead in that game. But it was quite clear, even with 10 men, Brazil were the better team and outplayed England. But as the the game moved, we realized that we didn't even really care anymore. And I've never really understood why there's a lot of English people who who feel like this about their national team. I think, Andy, you've also expressed this in the past, nowhere you know, you you don't feel that you can particularly get up for an England game. Uh,
1: them as well. That's the thing. It's them. It's not even us or we. But that's, that's the north-south divide really, Andy, isn't it? It's something that I sense through these podcasts. You know, the north of England seems very detached from the south of England in a football sense. England is very, it does feel very south-centric when you live in the north. You, you do feel quite sort of detached and especially the area where I live. I mean, it's... It's not the case with everybody. I've got to say there's still lots of people who are hardened England fans in the area, but there's, there is, I'd say, a growing number of of people over the past decade or so that have become less and less enthusiastic to the point, just what Adam said there You know, they just feel like you know it's, it is what it is. I mean, England is it's you know it's synonymous with Wembley, and it's seen as you know Wembley is London, and that's you know that's England's home stadium. When they went around the country, there was a really good atmosphere, and you felt you almost actually felt kind of part of it. You know, that's where England are. That's where everything's based, and. If you want to see England, well, you've got to jolly well make your way down here because we aren't coming up there to, to see you guys in your flat caps with your whippets down your trousers.
2: So from sort of two thousand and two onwards, I just didn't really particularly even look forward to England games that much in the international tournaments, and certainly since I moved away in two thousand and ten, I'm probably, well, I definitely am, a lot more bothered about. Chile's performances and it's strange I don't even feel particularly guilty about that like I say I just I just feel very detached from the England national team and I'm not exactly sure why that is where where Andy you so seem does to the have like, a, come like in?
0: a does the failure come in, uh, in not that, really <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah well, I suppose <laughs> enough heartbreak and one score
2: <laughs> yeah I, I support Norwich here and I support uh, I um, sorry, I support Norwich in England, and I support Eureka here in Chile. Yeah, a couple of years ago, both Norwich and Arika managed to get relegated in the same week. You know, heartbreak and disappointment, and all that's all part of football for me. It's not that. It's, it's it's just when I lose, I don't feel. I don't feel it. That's the thing. If you don't feel disappointed when they lose, and sometimes you almost find it funny then surely, for some reason, it seems pointless even supporting them.
1: I was going to say, with, with your club team, at least the moments of excitement, come, you know, the, the desperate times.
2: I think that could be, you know, they've, got, they've tried so many different things, haven't they? But even though they've tried different things, it always still seems the same and looks pretty much the same. It's strange to try and play international football and watching Chile play international football. You know, it really is chalk and cheese.
0: Adam does it come down to expectations you know we often say in these pods about the ramping up of expectations through the media BBC ITV especially do it you know the the newspapers do it and then it always seems to end in deflation now for the rest of us in the UK we we find it incredibly funny but that will have it's got to affect you psychologically somewhere down the line is that the psychological effect
2: yeah um perhaps I think so just many factors really Mental and and technical, and I and I think that's sort of a whole pod in itself. And we're yep. pushed for time, and I'd rather speak about one of my other positives, which is. Oh you,
0: you're pushing shit. this pod forward at a terrible
1: rate. <laughs> <laughs> and I, did, what have you? Can, can to say go? one thing? <laughs> Just say one thing yeah. on England. Although I don't yeah. feel connected to the England football team when Great Britain when it was in the athletics at the Olympics I felt quite enthused by that and and I'm I quite like the cricket when England cricket team are playing I actually I, I I still cheer for that so it's not it's not that you lose any kind of nationalistic pride it's not you know anything like that it's just something about the football team and and that's it's it's kind of it, it's it's own little thing it's it's a bit of a strange one isn't it
2: yeah I, th- I think it's perhaps to do with attitude no more than anything else because it's it seems to me like the players perhaps value their their clubs more than they do their national team and well you yeah, know they're entitled to do that and that and i think that's reflected in some way in English football culture in general where you know most fans would rather see their club do well than yeah. their national team do well uh, I think it's just part of English football culture, really. Yeah,
1: well, it links your links your uh, first positive and your first negative quite nicely together, then.
2: And it kind of links my next one, which is which is Chile, and and that's Chile sort of over the last decade and how much joy that they've brought to me. First, as an impartial viewer, you know, I, I first started following the Chile national team in the 2010. World, World Cup qualifiers, you know, partly because I, I was always interested in the work of Marcelo Bielsa, so when he took over Chile I was interested to see how that went. It also kind of coincided with me being able to afford Sky for pretty much the first time in my life, um, sort of between 2007-2009 and they used to show some of the World Cup qualifiers on there late at night. It was really, uh, you know, I just fell in love with the Chile national team during that era, really the BL era, and Sam Pauli Ben carried on his great work. Well, with the failure of Claudio Borghi in between them, and and then we've seen Juan Antonio Bisi sort of do even better than Sam Pauli, arguably. Um, since it's been interesting to see, but yeah, just just generally sort of Chile over the last ten years for me have been one of the one of the best football teams to watch. Whether you include club football in that. We've we've seen the likes of Arturo Vidal and Alexis Sanchez become world class players in that. I've seen something which is very rare at international football, and I feel that you know we're talking about the differences between club football and international football. You know, a few minutes ago, I think one of the interesting things with this Chile national team over the last few years is it's like they are a club side because they've been together, so been together in a uh, under twenty side as well. Which certainly helped. Um, quite a few of them play together in a successful Colo-Colo side, at least successful domestically. Some of them also play together in a very successful that the Chile side, both domestically and at South American club club uh, continental level as well. So, three or four different factors coming into play to make them like this this dream team, really, of of Chilean football.
1: Would you say then, perhaps? With Chile that you don't get with England is like a sense of enjoyment watching them.
2: So most of the time the, the sort of the uh, the couple of times that I haven't been able to to see that, that's when I've been worried about if the managers got what it got what it takes to kind of manage this Chile side, huh? but we certainly saw it with Bielsa and São Pauli, where you know there's clear identity running through the team, you know really exciting attacking football. Uh, ability to sort of if one formation isn't working change that tactically flexible we need the star players in the team but around those star players sometimes it doesn't really matter who plays as long as that core is there and and the philosophy of play is there Chile usually, usually get by pretty well you know if, if you look at the lineups in those two you know famous Copa America finals that Chile beat Argentina on penalties in, in both of them you know the value of the Argentina team would be you know three four times as much as as a, as a Chile team, I think I think they've shown more than most that you know it's it's to not be individual. So they've just been a joy to watch. I, I know that I know that Dave's really enjoyed watching them as well, especially in the 2014 World Cup. No,
0: you see, you're you're talking there, and you know you you and I arrived down here roughly more or less around the same time, and I thought I was come to this wonderful world of Brazilian football. And I've arrived at the probably the darkest period ever in their bloody history. Um, looking things are looking a bit better uh, under Cheech. I was expecting to have the joy that you felt because I always identified with the Brazilian national team, for basically from the eighty-two World Cup onwards. They were always my, you know, my, my heart always sort of followed them. Northern Ireland weren't always there, so they were they were always my go-to team in a World Cup. And I also enjoyed Italy as well. Always sort of those were my two teams I like to follow. I'd always make a point of watching, but. Slowly but surely I'm beginning to get what you're saying about the joy of it again. We had the disaster here of a 2010 World Cup it was hardly anything to write home about either for Brazil. And and that period of Manu Mendes, you know, Scolari, Dunga a couple of times, it really took its toll on the football down here. But your experiences from Chile have been the complete opposite of mine down here. And I, I do enjoy Chile. I, I've enjoyed the, the style of football, that, the, as you rightly say, the style of football that they have played through tournaments through Copa Americas, the last two Copa Americas, they have fully deserved a win, in my opinion. And, and they play football the right way, Adam. I think that's that, that's the, the hook in all of it, is they try and play football the way that the real fans want
2: to see it played. Yeah, definitely. And it means so much to people here as well, the Chile national team. I know, I know that we've already covered this, but just to kind of exemplify that point, further you know that that you know the confederations cup doesn't really mean much to people unless your nation's in it really that final defeat this year to germany you know the the country was in state of mourning really for the next few hours after that game Uh, it was it was such a huge disappointment not so much the fact that they lost there was a sense of that they felt a bit of injustice in the way that germany played against them because you know it, it was left to chile to kind of make a game of it really you know to to try and force the entertainment in the match and Germany were quite happy especially when they went one nil up which is a goal you know from a mistake at the back from Chile against the runner plate. and after that Germany were completely happy to to sit back in that final and soak up the pressure and, and a lot of Chileans felt quite offended by that I think I think they wanted Germany to come out and try and take them on more there's many different ways to win a win a football match I guess but yeah, uh, I'll probably, I may touch on that again later in one of my negatives. Chile were even the most entertaining team in what I would consider the worst World Cup of my lifetime, and that was the 2010 World Cup. They didn't actually score too many goals; they only scored three goals in it, uh, one in each of the group games. But in that team felt in that 2010 World Cup, you know, it was such a difference watching Bielsa's Chile compared to any other side in that competition it was absolutely ridiculous um the speed and the attacking play that, that that Chile played but like in most world cups dave you know they came unstuck in the in the last 16 against brazil three three world cups in a row for for chili that's and, happened and, and the they, lost, they lost world in 98 Cup. oh yeah that well, was heartbreak
0: that yeah. was no, even from a brazilian standpoint i can understand i i, I do think you were the better team honestly
2: well, the 2014 World Cup, yeah, as I briefly mentioned earlier, the experience of watching watching that here in Chile was amazing. The 2-0 the win over over Spain will certainly live long in their memory. You know, people were partying on the streets for hours after that. You know, it was daytime here in Chile. Everybody had the day off work to watch it, and the celebrations ran right into the, the middle of the night. I I actually then, uh, about a week after that game, I flew over to Brazil. I was hoping that Chile won the group because if they won the group, that would mean that I would see Chile in there in the last 16, in Fortaleza, uh, against Mexico, but unfortunately they they lost their last group game to Netherlands, so ended up watching Netherlands Mexico instead. And I also would have seen Chile's quarter final if they had got through in that last 16 phase as well. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a a double a double blow. But yeah, to watch that Chile Brazil game and then penalty shootout, I watched it in a in a small bar in Fortaleza, and it was me and my wife both in. In red shirts, in a sea of yellow, and it and it was quite funny because we because we both in that game, you know, we sh- we shouldn't get up and celebrate, you know. i uh, you'd have probably gonna, got away with it. it. You'd have got away it's, with it. it, it definitely. Gonna, no, no, no way. That's what we agreed on. But as soon as Sanchez is shot, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah it, but the culture down here allows. us for that, Adam. You know, yeah. in England, you don't you don't be seen uh, celebrating, uh, you know, nah. against them. But
2: you can get away with it yeah. down here. I do want to say, you know, sort of after that penalty shootout, the the Chile Brazil penalty shootout, you know, all the Brazilians did come up to us, come up to us, and sort of commiserate us. But yeah, I, I always see that as a as a massively as a massive missed opportunity for Chile, because uh, Brazil just seemed gone, didn't they, Dave, in that penalty shootout? Half the team were crying before the before the penalties Absolutely. were even taken. It was, it it was, was embarrassing. absolutely bizarre to watch. And, and even the Columbia game,
0: they should, they, should, they, should, they should have lost to Columbia as well. And I think yeah. that was the thing with, with that World Cup, Adam, that I'll always remember. Yeah. You know, there was no... Cel- you talk about the celebration and whatnot, and that's what I expected here for the World Cup. It didn't happen because they were so underwhelmed. They were they were progressing. But doing so just about, it wasn't the style in which, you know, like, I think the difference is, you know, Chile and Brazil, I think you can see that there's a big pedigree, World Cup pedigree with this country. And they didn't even play to that expectation. I think that was the the, the numbing factor in this country.
2: Yeah, sort of looking back on the World Cup, the the 7-1 against Germany, you you can see it coming.
0: It was coming. Yeah, definitely coming.
2: Yeah, but they had certainly got away with it against Chile. And as Simon mentioned in his pod a few weeks ago, you know, they hacked Colombia out of it in the other one, So, But shall we move on? Talking about another negative, I think I worded this in my message to you guys as the European axis of Evil. What we've seen certainly in the sort of last sort of decade or so, this emergence of these super clubs. And for me, it's to the kind of a detriment of the game, really. First of all, many of those clubs, and I'm talking here sort of Real Madrid, Juventus, Barcelona, Bayern Munich. You could maybe even include Paris Saint-Germain in this. Maybe Manchester United to an extent, Chelsea possibly. We've seen some scandals around those clubs. Certainly Juventus, there's probably been some covered up in, in some of the other ones that I've mentioned there. And I know it just doesn't sit right with me. Certain clubs have just so much power in football these days, and I think it's kind of got even worse since um, financial fair play was introduced. Which is the which is effect. which is kind of <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's kind of had the opposite of, Yeah. Even just in sort of the last couple of years, we've seen some of the most kind of scandalous transfers ever. Really. Yeah. It's it's fine for Neymar to make his move, but how that transfer was done supposedly. If you take into account the fact that, well, from what I read, you know, he's basically been given money from Qatar to pay out his contract. So, kind of, PSG haven't actually paid the transfer themselves. It's just just stuff like this sits very uncomfortably with me. As does the idea where these kind of massive clubs bring over many players from South America early on in their career. Basically never play them, just sort of loan them out so it's not just South Americans, you've got yeah African players too, especially and and also other players across Europe. You know, but they loan them out. They don't seem to particularly care about you know their progress unless they do exceptionally well. And then maybe, if if that player is lucky, they get to finally play for that club. More often than not, it's it's a case of they like they will just get a quite a big transfer fee for him. I don't know what you guys feel about it, but for me, I just feel that these super clubs are kind of ruining football.
1: Uh, just on the Neymar one, I don't know how true it is, but there was a picture floating around of what was uh, purported to be the check from uh, PSG's owners that uh, was delivered to Barcelona. So it the muted way that it was uh, it, it was that had been put around that they would actually employ Neymar in some capacity and then uh, from that payment it would you know then he would pay himself out of the uh, out of the contract it was actually the Qatari owners with and it was signed from the the Bank of Qatar and that was the check that was handed over to uh, to Barcelona but I mean it's however it comes across the the, the murkiness of football now I I just look at the amount of money be, that's been swished around for agents To facilitate moves actually happening, you know, like you actually need to sweet talk a guy into signing the 20 million pound contract. For where football came from, classed as, you know, the working man's game, the kind of money that is being thrown around within the game, players, agents, um, between the clubs on transfer fees. Uh, top executives, even when the, you move, then move on to the, the so-called guardians of the game, the likes of UEFA and FIFA, uh, and who are just basically playing politics, except they're playing it with a sport. And we've got all them kinds of mind-blowing amounts of money floating around them office as well. And, and the amount of corruption that goes on, it's just...
2: Well, yeah, <laughs> it, they, they're it, complicit. That, they're complicit in it, aren't they? Yeah, uh, that's it. We're all it. part FIFA, of this. That's you know, that's just part of the problem, really.
1: It's all under this umbrella of of what modern football is about, and you know what happens on the pitch sometimes is always is is sometimes like second place as to what's happening off the pitch. You know, people have become obsessed with the money, and it's the money, money, money. And we talk about how much a player is earning, how much they're going to get transferred for. How much does this? You know, does this person earn? How much are they going to get in endorsements? And how much will it cost them? And how many? year and it's you know we've got the twenty-four hour news TV services, Sky, uh, Sky Sports News, and that's what it is. You know, it's so much of it is that they're just talk, constantly talking about the money, the money, the money, the money, the money, the money, and not so much about you know the the actual players what's happening on the pitch the quality of the players the, the actual football that everybody used to go to a match to go and see you know it's almost like a consequence of all this and like you say and it's along the way you've got financial fair play was was you know, I think the, the premise behind it, the idea behind it, was was a good one, and that they didn't want people just coming in and using football as you know a plaything that they could throw money in and then walk away when they get bored and co- cause all sorts of trouble. You know, that the football would have to be self-sufficient, self-funding. You know, in principle, that sounds like a good idea, but in practice, what we found is it's all based on revenue. So the biggest clubs are obviously attracting the biggest revenue so it's football is is still a cartel
2: yeah Um, but it's it's also how that revenue is generated though isn't it yeah because some of the revenue is generated fairly but others it's just like the club owners sponsoring themselves we've seen it with manchester city you know to to get around i think one year to get around financial fair play They just sponsored their own stadium and training ground for a ridiculous amount of money,
1: and and that was their
2: way around it. And PSG the same, yeah. It's it's stuff like this which really sits uncomfortably with me, and the fact that I believe that they're ruining many players' careers potentially because just by stopping them from playing first team football. Yeah, I I just feel that the spread of talent, sort of even sort of twenty thirty years years ago around the world, was a lot greater. And I think we saw in the end sort of better players emerge from that as well.
1: Alongside the concentration of wealth, you know, the, the money seems to be concentrated within probably 20 to 30 clubs in Europe. It's almost like a concentration of the best players as well within maybe, you know, sort of about 10 to 15 of the clubs. So like you say there, where you know, where the wealth was, was a bit more spread out and the players were more spread out, everything seems to be a lot more concentrated and everybody else is feeding off scraps.
2: See, I, I just wonder how many sort of South American players have moved over to Europe in the last few years when they were just sort of 18, 19 years old and then they haven't barely played a game for a couple of years
0: Paulinho who just made the move there Adam's a prime example, went to Tottenham didn't do anything, came back, but, ripped Brazil up went to Barca.
2: Yeah but he, he went a little bit later but it's, it's just some players, I don't know, pluck one out, I don't think, Kennedy at Chelsea for example, who just seems to either sit on the bench or get low out every now and again. I think he's played like two or three games for Chelsea. If he had maybe stayed in Brazil for three, four years and played week in, week out, he, he might have been in a lot better position in his career now to, to sort of make a move to Europe and become a first-teamer. It's just stuff like that for me.
1: Do you feel it's all driven by the money then, that look, players are I th- just I think seen as is, a commodity?
2: I, I think greed comes, uh, yeah, it's that sense of yeah, money plays a part but it's also that kind of of the, the kind of the evil human instinct, and why I said the word "evil" of this sort of power, this lust for to have as much power as possible. But the problem is that quite often involves a certain amount of corruption as well. Can I just add sort of a negative off the back of this as well?
1: A double That's negative. Sort of an, no, yeah, you've really got us excited. Not, not, you and,
2: love this, <laughs> and, and and I think you guys all, especially like this, being Liverpool fans, but yeah it's like the spending manchester united did um previous to last season the football they played off the back of it was for me really insulting yeah one of my other negatives in this is teams that play within themselves yeah i I feel defensive football is fine if there's like a clear gap in quality in the terms of you know, say in the FA Cup, when a non league side goes to a championship or Premier League side, you know, there's a clear gap in quality there. So it's fine for the opposition to play defense you know, put 11 men behind the ball, ask the better team to break them down. If they get a luck, then, you know, we're all happy for them. But, you know, when Mourinho was doing it with Manchester United last season, I just found it, you know, against clubs which are smaller than Manchester United, just found it pathetic.
0: But Adam, you know, be devil's advocate, I'm on board with you 100%, but just a devil's advocate, he won two bloody trophies playing that crap.
2: For, for a club of Manchester United size, you know, the League Cup and Euro, Europa League are, you know, secondary, aren't they, to what that club has it's come a, to. It's
0: still a European trophy, you know what I mean? It, it's still a European trophy, it's still a domestic trophy. And given the draws that they played... Like, you know, it, it, it almost quantifies, it justifies it. No, you, you know, Mourinho can actually stand in a press conference. Well, well, I won two trophies. I won a European trophy in my first season. It got them where they needed to go. They didn't get the uh, Champions League qualification. And, and that has been a problem for them in recent seasons. He managed to do that, plus gain a trophy in the process of doing it. And I think, you know, you talk about it uh, from a Liverpool fan point of view. I'd have been quite happy with that, but then again, we're not of that level.
2: <laughs> just think about the the side he's got there potentially could play uh, a lot more attractive football. And when managers don't get the very best out of their players in terms of entertainment-wise, because, you know, football is entertainment at the end of the day, I just feel, you know, short-changed when I, when I watch them. I know they supposedly played a lot better yesterday, you know, against... Uh, West Ham, one game. That's one game. Yeah, I didn't watch it. Just on the basis of the, the amount of times I watched Mourinho's Manchester United last season, didn't want to waste my time.
1: Do you, do you feel that you, your opinion on that is kind of influenced by being based in South America and and the ethos to football there?
2: Well, I guess so. But you, you get you get a huge variety of styles here in South America. I think Dave mentioned it earlier on. On, on this podcast or he certainly mentioned on the podcast before you know he was quite surprised when he moved to Brazil at the kind of football which is actually played in the in the Brazilian league
0: Let's say I was a bigger fan of Brazilian soccer as you are of Chilean soccer I think we'll leave it at that Adam it covers all bases
2: <laughs> So I, I don't think like there's you know a typical South American style I, th- I think that exists in people's head. heads were a bit like what we said earlier that you know with the uh, with a World Cup, if if you grew up with a World Cup and you were sort of fed certain images of of, of South American football, then you know you, you do think of it as kind of all flair, skills, tricks, and flips, But the stuff that you see week in week out in the in the in the leagues domestically here, certainly not like that. I think this is just you know a personal preference to how I want football to be played. Personally, I prefer teams. You know, look to attack, keep the ball, make the opposition do the work. You know, going back to another one of my positives earlier, that's why I've enjoyed watching Chile so much in the, in the, in the last uh, few years. You know, they, they were kind of my the perfect image of a football team in my head. Another one we'll come on to in a minute that is also kind of a perfect team.
0: Adam, but do you not feel that the two marry together there? You know, it, it's, it all boils down to money again. You know what I mean? It's it's like the fear of losing in the Premier League, failing to remain in the Premier League for some of these teams. It's just a fear of losing, so you put 11 men behind the ball. And it all comes back to, to financial, where you, where your point actually started from. And that's the issue for me. Teams are, are having to play within themselves because the price of losing is just way, way too much to pay.
2: I've personally experienced that in recent years following my club, Norwich. Basically, certainly under Chris Chris Hewton. And I think we saw this in their game against Manchester City at the weekend as well. Yeah, the fact that there's so much at stake, like you say, Dave. Yeah, a lot of managers, instead of trying to win the game, will just try and not lose it. Yeah, if that means putting 10, 11 men behind the ball for the whole game, then that's what they'll do. Personally, I'd rather, I'd rather get relegated in a blaze of glory. And that certainly hasn't been the case with Norwich's last couple of relegations. Yeah, you know, the last time we were in the uh, Premier League, we did start off by playing attacking football. We got thrashed 6-2 by Newcastle. And our manager, Alex Neil, after that kind of bottled it a little bit. You know, he, he's, he just threw his philosophy out the window and reverted to a sort of a, a lot more conservative style. It worked a little bit in the short term, but in the long term, it just kind of drained the team of of their kind of attacking flair and confidence so for me yeah you know, i'm a, i'm a fan of attacking football so what more can i say
0: Nobody's going to shoot you down for that now. We're, we're, I think we're all in the same boat. But listen, that, that you know that whole topic there, Adam. It, we could talk about for the next three hours. Uh, we could pod about it for the next three hours because it it runs that deep. But listen, to to, to try and keep this moving on, let's let us let us move forward with with one of the positives again.
2: My next positive is going to be Norwich City 92-93. Now the first Premier League season was of course won by Manchester United, and that's kind of started an era of dominance. That first season could have been so very different. If Norwich had done the double over Manchester United that season, I believe that Norwich would have probably been the first Premier League champions. Uh, We ended up finishing third that season behind Villa and Manchester United, but we were top uh, for most of the season. We're eight points clear in December. We're a couple of points clear in April as well. At the start of April, but we lost three one at home to Manchester United, with a few games to go, and and the rest is history. So, to say. Manchester, that was a key game in Manchester United's running. They won it, and I think they won every game after that. And you, Liverpool fans, if you want somebody else to blame for Manchester United's period of dominance, then, then maybe you can blame Norwich City.
0: No, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I don't. I don't mind Norwich at all as a club. I, I always, I always find brilliant. But... <laughs> quite interesting (laughs) you know uh, she's definitely different Andy would you remember much of that season and you know to be honest with you Adam just jogged my memory you forget these things you forget that that, that year that Norwich
2: were so good you really do I I should say that sort of my main positive about Norwich's season and linking it to that last point is that we were ridiculously attacking although we finished third in the table we also finished with a negative goal difference which is quite <laughs> impressive, if you think about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not really the, the, the modern ideal that we see yeah. today now, really, is it, Andy? It's, it's like no. we would win, we'd quite often win games, you know, last-minute winners or, or narrowly, like 3-2 or 4-2 or 2-1. But we took some hidings on the road, especially. I think Liverpool beat us... 4-0 or 5-1, I forget now. Uh, Blackburn beat a 7-1 in one of Alan Shearer's best games of his, his career. I think he got four that day. And I actually wrote a piece for a Norwich site about this season fairly recently. And I was reminded by the fact that when Norwich lost 7-1 away to Blackburn, it was, it was about October time in the season. And Blackburn were doing well that season as well. It was kind of a top-of-the-table clash. And it was at Ewood Park. So we lost 7-1. But I remember my brother coming home from that game and telling me that Norwich had actually played quite well. <laughs> so make of that what you will.
1: You did actually finish twelve points behind, you know, in the end.
2: Well, like I say, just tailed off. It, yeah, we tailed off, and they steamrolled. Sort of after they beat us, and and they'd also beaten us in December in another key game. You see,
1: yeah,
2: uh, when we were yeah, eight
1: points, points. points clear.
2: Yeah, when we were eight points clear. You know, they at, at that point they did didn't necessarily look like they were going to get themselves in the title race um they came from a little bit further back but still if, if you sort of add those two together and the fact that we lost <laughs> we haven't done this since but basically it which are our, our fierce rivals did the double over us that season it was the last time they've done that basically if you combine sort of those six points and the six <laughs> points we lost against Manchester united you know for a lot of norwich fans we just see that those sort of four games as uh as the as the key games that season,
1: I, I do remember that team, and, and I re- remember the following season them playing Bayern Munich as well. You know, it's those little things and like Brian Gunn and Goal uh, and Rule Fox. I remember him being yeah. being uh, pretty Rul, Rul good Fox on the wing.
2: Probably my Rule Fox was probably my favourite player. Yeah, in the uh, in Mark, the Mark Robbins,
1: 90s. So, uh, Mark, Robbins yeah, did Mark well Robbins, then. he we scored just, plenty of Mark goals. Robbins,
2: yeah, Mark Robbins, we had just signed um, from Manchester United, and we actually started that season. We were 2 0 down at half time to Arsenal on, on the first day of the season. And it was another game my brother was at, actually. And, and he tells me that basically all the chat at half time between the Norwich fans was are we going to stay up? Because in in the summer we had lost one of our greatest ever managers, Dave Stringer, who had led us to fifth and fourth place finish, finishes and two FA Cup final. Yeah, he decided to step down, and he was replaced by Mike Walker, yeah. who didn't really have much of a track record at the time. We had lost Robert Fleck, who was kind of a cult hero and top scorer previous seasons. Yeah, I remember that Jersey. him
1: going to Chelsea. Yeah,
2: yeah. Robbins came in at half. Um, well, just after halftime. In that game against Arsenal, with us two 0 down, he, he he got a goal back pretty much straight away with one of his first touches, and and then we scored another three goals in the space of about ten minutes, and ended up winning four two, which was a huge shock at the time because Arsenal had one of the best defenses in the country. Um, I think they had recently won a league with mm-hmm. a great defensive record. Yeah, it was it was a huge shock at the time, and, and that season we just kept coming back from going either a goal down or two goals down. That was one of the hallmarks of the side. Well, you know, whatever the situation was, we would just keep on attacking, and that and that obviously led to these thrash-ins that we got against Blackburn, Liverpool, Spurs, Manchester United. But <laughs> it was uh, it was certainly fun to watch all the same. And I think this side, more than even the Chile one in recent years, is the side which has kind of shaped my philosophy and thinking on football, on how it should be played.
0: Adam, do you feel embittered in any way that Manchester United, after this sort of, in recent years, have sort of tried to steal your identity with all this glazer out stuff, and they've stole your colours, they've stole everything. <laughs> They're like a Norwich rip-off club.
2: <laughs> I, I did. If, if, if you had followed me around that time, yeah, that was certainly a drama I was banging on Twitter. <laughs> I,
0: I'm around sure it pissed time. you. I, I would
2: have me right off out there. <laughs> But the thing which annoyed me most about it was them trying to claim that the colours were gold and green. That's uh, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's <laughs> the thing which bugged me. Come on, guys! It's yellow. It's yellow and green. They're Norwich scarves. So, yeah, at least pie from our club shop if you're gonna if you're gonna wear a Norwich scarf.
1: I, I do remember as you as well having probably the most middle class name sounding player, uh, Jeremy Goss.
2: Yeah his story is kind of interesting as well because Goss um had been at the club for sort of a decade pretty much and it was only really when Walker took over that he became a regular in the side he he played quite often in ninety two, ninety three, but it was the next season the season that most people remember you know the first sort of few months of 19 um the few months of the season 93 94 where Norwich beat Bayern Munich. And Goss scored a brilliant goal in that game, uh, in both legs actually. And and yeah, he's now kind of a cult hero of the club, despite not really, although he was there for, like I say, over a decade, he didn't actually play that much apart from in two of our most famous seasons. It's a a strange story with him and and sort of those unbelievable goals that he scored because it wasn't just against Bayern Munich. Around the same time, he scored an absolutely incredible volley against Leeds as well. He also scored a winner in the derby. I think he was just in the form of his life, whilst the club really were in the form of their life as well. Because you know, third place finish was our highest ever finish. Ninety-three-94 was the only time we were in Europe. Um, after beating by Munich, we were knocked out rather unfortunately against um, Inter Milan. You know, we certainly should have won the game in the San Siro. Comfortably um, missed loads of chances, and what? And once we went out, then really that's when the players started getting sold off. I
1: remember Mike yeah. Walker going yeah. to Everton as well.
2: Yeah, that that was a big that was a big point as well. But we sold Fox, we sold Sutton. Those two sales were especially you know hard to take for a lot of Norwich fans at the at the time. And yeah, Walker moving to Everton. So you know we, we'd come third in the Premier League. We'd then had a decent run in Europe. And then the season after that, we ended up getting relegated. <laughs> and uh, and we didn't get back to the Premier League for almost a decade after that. It was a, it was a crazy time to, to support the club. But, you know, as we've seen in recent years we, and sort of over the last sort of 30, 40 years of our history, we have been a yo-yo club. Yeah. I think it's fair to say. I don't think that we belong in the Premier League. Any much as we belong in the championship, you know we flirt between those two divisions.
0: Well, listen, let's let's move it on again and do a negative. uh, Your next negative, Adam, and what have you got for us this time? And don't say Manchester United stealing your colours. Whatever you do,
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to do a whole bit on this, but I'll just do I'll just do one phrase, and and it's something that, that I've argued with you before, Dave. Actually. And that's uh, penalty. The the cliche that penalties are a lottery.
0: Oh no, you're not going there, are you? Oh no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's few things which Oh, I have to include something about penalties in here. The guys that I do the South American pods with expect it of me. Yeah, I, this phrase that penalties are a lottery. For our
0: listeners, maybe it'd be, it'd be worth saying you're a bit of a penalty connoisseur. <laughs> you're a bit of an anorak for penalties. I think it would be a, a fair thing to say.
2: Indeed, I've, I've even read a couple of books on it. <laughs> That's how obsessed I am with. But um, geek, <laughs> I, I was I was badly scarred by penalties growing up. You're an England fan, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in, yeah, my penalty history is this: I watched England lose 1990 to Germany in the World Cup semi-final. Then obviously we've got the Euro '96 semi-final. Then we've got Argentina in '98. But the one which really hurt more than probably all of those was. In 2002, Norwich got to the playoff final, Cardiff against uh, Birmingham. We lost that penalty shootout and it was around that time. All the press afterwards was, "Ah, uh, you know, we were we were so unlucky to lose. You know, anything can happen on penalties. It's, you know, 50-50. But I read after that game that Birmingham had been practising penalties all week whilst Norwich hadn't done any at all. This got me really annoyed. And then from then on, just investigated through books. And and the majority of times, the team that practices the most wins on penalty shootouts. I just don't have any time for anybody who says that penalties are a lottery. Uh,
1: Can Can I just say what I really hate that bugs the life out of me when I hear it in penalty shootouts or even just penalties when they say, oh, the goalkeeper guessed the right way. I hate that. Have you seen, do they seen the amount of work that's done behind the scenes and they sit yeah, there and I they'll think, work and they'll go through Andy, the goalkeepers. Oh, they, they, they go, yeah, you know, I, predominantly I so. he'll go this way. He'll go that way. They'll even read the players run up and think, right, it looks like they're going that way or that way. The way they're shaping the body, this, this whole thing that I'm just going to jump one side and see what happens.
2: I think that was possibly true in the past. That keepers guessed the right way, but yeah, it's, it's certainly, certainly not true these days. Somebody I know uh, during the playoffs a couple of years ago, when Norwich beat Ipswich in the in the in the playoff semi-finals, the crowd ran on the pitch at the end, and somebody went to Norwich dugout and they found like this folder, and and in the folder was kind of this profile of all of possible penalty takers for Ipswich, which way they would most likely take that penalty. Yeah, clubs pretty much. You know, middle tier, certainly, you know, the, the big clubs, you know, they're all doing their homework on penalties these days. And if you're not, then the chances are you won't you, you won't win one. You know, but there is so much information out there these days. You know, you can prepare for a penalty shootout. People say that you can't replicate the pressure. You know, you could use that argument for anything. So I don't know if you guys have ever taken a driving test, for example you know if you take a driving test at 17 and you haven't had one lesson before then you're going to be pretty nervous for it because you don't really know how to do it where if you have enough lessons to the point that you feel that you are very competent at it then you're going to go into it with a lot less nerves and feel a lot more confident so you know that surely applies across the board I, I, I don't I don't see that penalties. Obviously, you know, you've got the pressure of the environment, the crowd and stuff, but it's about reducing the odds. I'm not saying that you can completely get rid of the pressure, but you want to reduce those factors and put it in your favour. You know, when England lost in Euro 96, you could see that the first five takers had all practice penalties, and they even said that. But for some reason they didn't really plan beyond that. So when Southgate stepped up to take the sixth penalty straight to the They're normally yeah. done by three. <laughs> yes. When when um, when when <laughs> Southgate, when Southgate uh, stepped up to take that sixth penalty, you know, you could just see written all over his face and he said he had never taken a penalty before, I think, he said afterwards. And and that's something that you quite often hear. Yeah, you know, the player that misses the the final penalty, you'll hear them say, Oh, I'd never never taken one before. Yeah, you know, I, I was so nervous. Uh, it's just. How do, you, how do you equate the Baggio then in the World Cup final? Lots of famous players have, have, have missed penalties, you know, Messi famously against Chile and all that. I'm not saying that but the best players don't miss them. I think it comes down to a number of factors, mental uh, and physical. But I think you can reduce those factors. And I, I think if you do it as a team rather than individually as well, I, th- I think that also helps. Yeah, you know, the famous story is Germany, isn't it? You know, they haven't lost a penalty shootout, and until I think Euro 2016, they hadn't even missed a penalty since their famous uh, defeat to Czechoslovakia in Euro in in the Euros in the 70s. So, you know, once Germany lost that penalty shootout to Czechoslovakia, for the next sort of 20, 30 years, they were obsessed with making sure that they were perfect you know, from the penalty spot. That moment, on. I, th- I think for some coaches it's more of a priority than others. But, you know, you've got you've got to prepare for it. When Chile lost to Brazil, Sampaoli came out. Uh, this is in 2014 World Cup, again, a game we discussed earlier. You know, Sampaoli came out after the game and said that they hadn't practiced penalties. Again, that was baffling to me that uh, they hadn't done that. I know that they didn't make the same mistakes, you know. Twelve months later, before that 2015 Copa America final, yeah, you know, it just seems like a lot of these coaches and players learn their lesson when it's too late, really.
0: And you, you, you've done Germany, you've you've lived there and whatnot, and you've sort of experienced their football. Have you have you, have you any retort on that on the German side? because Adam makes a very good point, like that they are super efficient for penalties.
1: Yeah, they are. I think with them, it's not so much a case of you know practice and practice and practice of the technique it's more of the mental side of it i i think in terms of you know the psychological side that's where it plays into them because they just they they are they're built in with that that you know that 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 utter belief that self belief that i'm going to do this you're going to stay calm you're going to do this this is your job you're going to go step up and do it uh, and i'm sure that they practice but I mean, having played junior football there and, and played in a couple of teams uh, at an adult age, it, it wasn't something that is like religiously worked upon or anything like that. It's I think it's just for them. It, it's it, it's this kind of inbuilt psychological state, and their 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 whole mental state the way that they, they approach tournaments and they, they're just their manner of thinking. It's it's a slightly different psyche to when, say, the England team is involved in a penalty shootout. The immediate thing for an England team if they've all done a penalty shootout is, is uh-oh, who's going to miss? We're going to go out. It's kind of, it's the reverse. You know, they're thinking, in England, it's like they're thinking about the failure. You know, who's going to miss? Who's going to make the mistake? Who's, how many are they going to score? How are we going to go out? Whereas the Germans, it's purely thinking... Right, we just go and you score. Where is he going to put this? I'm going to save it. it. It's just that taking a different mental standpoint. I think that that that's probably where they get the advantage over so many other
2: teams. Yeah, you know, one of my favourite penalty takers is Charles Arangis, and he's taken yeah you know, quite a few penalties for Chile under a lot of pressure. I think he scored 22 consecutive penalties at one point in his career and yeah he's another one who says you know there's there's no luck involved it's just practice 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 he missed the first one he ever took and from that moment on onwards he just made it an obsession of his to get a technique and to get a point of the goal to aim at every time and for him to perfect that if you look at his penalties he pretty much does that you know he puts it in a place where the goalkeeper is very yeah, unlikely to save it. That does exist. There's a lot of stats out there, which you know suggest if you put it in a certain place in the goal, then the goalkeeper isn't going to save.
1: Well, that's it. So for the the, for the penalty taker, it's a mixture of technique, but also that that mental state, the calmness, the composure, and the confidence yeah, is, to step up. I'm yeah, going to do a, this, and that's what I'm going to do. I would say for the other side of it, for the goalkeeper, it's so much about the preparation. You know, like for penalty shootouts, it's that preparation of of who they have, who who takes them, where they do they usually put them, so they can prepare themselves. But also for reading, I think as well is reading players' run-ups. You know, very often that the way that a player is running up, the way they're shaping the body, in all likelihood, they're going to go one way or the other, and that's a thing. It's. You can yeah. obviously they can't also, go both ways. So it's it's there's a technique for the goalkeepers, but it's more about preparation. But yeah, but the other side of it, it's technique and it's that mental state, you know, because you've then, got you've got something to lose for the goalkeeper. They've got nothing to lose.
2: Another another key factor as well, and I will finish on this point uh, as we saw it in the Chile Portugal semi final in the Confederations Cup, is the tactics of um. Which player do you put first and last on a penalty shootout? Now, all the people who have studied penalties, like myself, would say that you put your strongest penalty taker first, or your most regular penalty taker first, or at least second. And then you just gradually move down the order from that point. Where So we saw that with Chile. So Chile put you know Vidal, Arangis, Sanchez all high up on their list, and they all scored. Well, Portugal, they went with one of their weakest first. They left uh, Ronaldo to last because I suspect that Ronaldo demanded, Cristiano Ronaldo demanded all the glory for himself. Although people say that, you know, it comes down to the individual in penalties, I don't believe that either. I, I, I still think even at that point, it's still a team game.
1: Fair, all fair points, I think. So are we going to finish up on a positive then?
2: Yes, we are. And, and this is something I really miss. So it's a, it's a little bit of a bittersweet positive, and that's going to football on the train. I don't know when you guys, well, Andy. I, I suspect you still do go to football matches fairly regularly in England. And I don't know about Dave when he when he used to go. How how often he went on a train to a football match? But I do feel that going to a football match, certainly in England, it's you know a real part of the a like, real part of the experience. Getting up early in the morning, gathering with your mates, buying a few beers, and getting on that train. Playing, playing a few cards on the way to the match, and and then you've got when you get to whatever away a ground that that you're going to. You know you've got to explore the pub scene in, in that in that town or city you've ended up in. And also sort of one of the one of the other beauties of this, of course, is that you get to see places you would never see otherwise. So my last two away trips, which were kind of my farewell trips before I moved out here to South America, but I did with the group Norwich fans that I used to travel with called the Capital Canaries. Um, So this is Norwich fans from or based in London. And the last two away trips that I did were Exeter and Hartlepool. So this is when Norwich had been relegated to uh, League One in 2009. And they were two of the most enjoyable away trips that I ever did. <laughs> just because I, I just love going to kind of those places that you'd never see otherwise. And also grounds that you probably wouldn't go to unless your team plays them um, in a game. And and these stadiums tend to be right in the heart of the neighbourhood or right in the heart of, of the city as well. You know, it's, it's not like, say, give one example, Reading's Ground, for example, which is kind of in an industrial park and completely soulless environment. Places like Exeter, Exeter and Hartlepool are right in the in the heart of the city. Yeah, it's, it's just that experience, really, of travelling together with your mates to a game. And for me, when I used to do that, the result, yeah, we obviously used to care about it, but I, I always used to be able to get over a bad result a lot quicker than if, say, I watched it on TV or watched it at home or anything like that um, because it's a shared experience, you No, know? Football should always be a shared experience anyway, but yeah, you know, it, it's, it's being in that collective and feeling like, like you're a team as well as that team on the pitch. So, you know, you, you win together and you lose together. You
0: know, you, know, you talk about trains there. My, my experience, I, I can relate to it. But if you, if you translate it to, to planes, because always sort of sitting from, from Northern Ireland point of view, you either have to take a ferry or, or in most cases a, a plane and the same for sort of away games. But I get what you mean. Absolutely, I do. You know, going away with your mates and, you know, you, you, like, Jesus, we used to start drinking at six o'clock in the morning in the airport and jump on the plane into the first bar we found, you know, and then sort of work your way towards the ground and whatnot. And I totally get it. And, and it's, you know, I wouldn't even just class it and box it off in into football, Adam, either. Sport, you know, when you go to go to an event, and like I used to go to all the rugby internationals, uh, Six Nations and, you know, Autumn internationals and whatnot in Dublin. And probably it was the only time I was ever on a train going from the going on the Dart from uh, from Dublin City Centre out to Lansdowne. But again, that sort of that atmosphere building on a train there, I can totally, I can totally buy into it and totally see where you're coming from. It, it's it it is quite sort of special, and you do feel that you belong in something. You know, there's a real sort of
2: real belonging there in that. Uh, my typical day with the of Canaries would start at nine a.m. in the morning and probably finish at like three a.m. the next morning. Because as soon as we got back to London, you know, we'd be going out there somewhere, probably end up uh, dancing the, the early hours away somewhere. So, you know, it, 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 was just a, it was just a great experience, a great way to spend a Saturday, something to look forward to and kind of uh, the boredom of an office job Monday to Friday to sort of get out on that Saturday was such a great release.
0: Andy, how, how do you travel? Um, you know, you're you're on the sort of mainland UK. There, are you a car person, a train person? How how do you go?
1: We went to the game at the weekend. Well, we actually went to a screening of the game at the weekend, so we went via the train, and that was me and my son. But it was that that was through the day. You know, we, you're there with everyone. I sit, you know, you're having a drink, you're having a laugh, and then afterwards it's down to a find another bar and you keep going and you're talking about the game and you're going over this and that goal and, and what it could have done better and who do you think we should sign and, you know, all the stuff you, you're picking apart. And just something that Adam said there, you know, it, I think is really true is you can get over that loss a bit easier when you're there with a the group because you, you are enjoying a
0: drink and a bit of crack
1: yeah. and, and you can
0: you
2: yeah find exactly funny and saying, yeah, this, yes. is, yes. and this is um this is something which can't be replicated on social media of course which is no. which since I've moved over here that's something that I've tried to do you know you, you try and sort of engage in debate and sort of share the loss with other with other fans, but it's just so different if you're not seeing.
0: You're you're missing alcohol, Adam. That that no, exactly. you know, you're missing that environment exactly. around the table. Exactly. Just, as they say, shooting the shit. You know, you can't. <laughs> there's no substitute for it.
1: Yeah, you don't yeah. talk it. You don't talk in 140 characters when you sat in the pub.
0: I don't talk in 140 characters anywhere
1: ago. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> you know me better than that. Man. No, there is something about that experience, when as a collective, and that, that's it. You, you can have a crack. You can start to laugh things off. Uh, you've picked it apart you can pick it to death and then it's it is you feel like it's cathartic isn't it uh, being amongst a group of pe- uh, people you know it, the results still might be still disappointing or things that have happened are still disappointing it is that that initial way of getting over things uh, but i've got to say most of the football i go to nowadays is non league it's um it's it's regional league football that I watch a local team where I coach and my son does ball-boying for. So I go along to them matches. So for me, it's it's more a standing with. There's a few people I stand with. Um, we watch the game. We enjoy it. We have, we have a chat. And enjoy having a cup of tea in the first half and a cup of tea in the second half. You know, it's it, it's not so much about having the beers. And that's car there and back and whatnot, but it's it's quite um it's quite sort of a pure experience when you're watching that level of football, I find.
0: Well do you know, I had a pod with Dan Fields in there and he he wrote that book, The European Game, and he went around and saw the fan culture some different and when we're talking about how how much the atmosphere has died um in England. You know, since the gentrification and so on, you know, we came to the conclusion that there are games where you are better off actually watching in the pub because the atmosphere is actually better in the pub and the crack is actually better as that collective. Do you guys buy into any of that?
2: I think it's the stadium environment, isn't it? It's it's the fact that you're forced to sit down, you can't drink in view of the pitch. All these things contribute to that kind of uh, sanitization of of the, of the stadium uh, and of the atmosphere and if you do go to england and and you see the fans traveling to the game on a train <laughs> then they will most likely be singing their way to to the ground but actually when they get into the ground they, they might even have to stop doing that oh, well you're not allowed to jump anymore no, exactly. not so yeah you, know, you well, just
0: the, the last few times I was at Anfield uh you know you're you're following the play, and maybe you know you're going up the opposite end and you stand up, and people are grabbing you by the shoulder and dragging you back and now oh, sit down, lad, sit down, lad. Man, it's fucking awful it's it's an awful experience now
2: uh, uh, and and there's a lot of people who go to a football match now and sort of experience in a very different way to how i would like to experience a football match which causes friction and tension even even amongst uh, your own supporters C- could you
0: imagine a south american being told the to same <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: yeah you know that's uh, that's why i like going to f- going to football here you know you you just don't you just don't get that you know, if every, you know, if you're not jumping up and down, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, you're an odd
0: boy. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> when I was back last year in England, I went to see Norwich against Arsenal at the Emirates. And, you yeah, know, it was just, just embarrassingly quiet. 60,000 people in there you know I, I go and watch Arika here locally at that time we were getting what four or five thousand people and those four or five thousand people were making more noise than the 60,000 at the Emirates it's just bizarre I, there's been a big debate about this recently sort of online amongst many Norwich fans about the atmosphere and, and I think it's gone on at all clubs I'm sure it has I think You've had similar at Liverpool. And it's sort of come to my attention that, you know, a lot of people go to football with, you know, absolutely no intention of singing or or, or basically do any of kind of the, what I would call sort of the basic.
0: Cultural behaviours. Cultural behaviours, let's call them.
2: You know, to sing and to cheer your team on is, for me, just some. It's,
0: it's frowned upon today. It's frowned is, upon.
2: Yeah, it, and now I it. it has become sort of increasingly, you, you kind of looked at increasingly weird maybe even try and start a chant or, or something like that it's strange but it, it does seem like football is going more and more that way
1: <laughs> I'm just trying to remember if we're on a positive or a negative here <laughs> well, we're,
0: well we've, we've, left it in, we've left it as a cliffhanger what about
2: that I, I, think, I, think, I think all my positives have had a negative element to them that's why we've my, enjoyed it even, even my Norwich 92-93 had a bittersweet element to it in the fact that I still
0: yeah, Man United stole <laughs> your colours.
2: <laughs> well, and I, I stole the title as well. <laughs> I'd,
0: I'd be more worried about the colours, to be honest with you. Robbery, robbery. <laughs> you have to come on and rant some more with well, us. Andy, finish it off. Uh,
1: I've, I've enjoyed it. Look, I, I, I really have enjoyed uh, discussing everything. It's um, uh, positives and negatives have nicely morphed into each other, and, and you could take them either way. As always, Adam, we do like to ask uh, a guest, if they've got a piece of music that takes them back to a particular moment. you like moment. to ask them I forget. Well, yeah, well, let's get that right, yeah. I like to ask because you forget. So is there a piece of music that particularly takes you back to one of those moments, uh, and which one would it be?
2: It would be the song Regret by New Order. Which came out in about March or April 1993. And I remember hearing this at, if, well, both in the car going to Norwich matches um, at the end of that season and also in the ground. And also, it's been used a couple of times, sort of looking back on the highlights of that season. And it was like the theme tune of the programme match of the 90s on, on on BBC at the end of the decade. It's a song that I associate with football. Um, New Order, of course, did really great song in the 1990 World Cup, uh, World in Motion. So, you know, it is, it is kind of a band synonymous with football as well. But yeah, this song, Regret, by new order is the one which takes me back to uh, happier Norwich times, and I'm currently experiencing.
1: Yeah, well, that is the power of music, you see. It takes you back to all these different points in your life, and it's nice to be able to tie it up with football. So, Adam, thanks so much for uh, all your positives, your negatives, and and the, and the good old rant and uh, negativity that we could enjoy. But uh, that's it for this is for another in my life, uh, and we will go out on you order.